Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Episode 6, The Heir of Caligula and the Son of Commius. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for keeping the community going, I offer members-only episodes, rough transcripts, and other extras. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Christina, Matthew, and Dan for contributing already. Okay, today we're rocking through about 100 years of history, from about 54 BCE to 42 CE. And in that, we're going to be covering the events that eventually lead to the Roman occupation of Britannia. The major characters of this episode will be Octavius Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, Caligula, one of Rome's most colorful emperors, Cassius Charea, the commander of the Praetorian Guard, Claudius, one of the more underestimated emperors in Roman history, Caractacus, the leader of the Catuvalani, the son of Cunobelinus, and all-around tough Celt, and Verica, the son of Commius, the king of the Atrebates, and Roman ally. When we last left off, Caesar left Britannia. And actually, despite how rough his trips to Britannia had been, he still might have regretted that. Or at the very least, he probably regretted a few things he did once he got back to Rome, because things didn't end too well for him. But whatever his personal feelings about his two invasions might have been, when he left, he was able to claim he was victorious over the Britons. And he set a legal precedent for further invasions and annexation. However, life got in the way, and he never got the chance to become Britannicus. As we discussed in the last episode, during this period, the cozy relationship between Commius and Rome was disrupted. Assassination attempts tend to do that. And so Commius decided to scamper to Britannia and set up an atrobatic kingdom there, and basically glare across the channel and maybe give them the two-finger salute. And it's interesting that he managed to pull that off, considering that he was probably widely seen by the Britons as a Roman stooge. But they allowed him to stay and set up his own kingdom, so good for him. And he stayed true to his word, refusing any dealings with the Romans following their failed assassination attempt. And seriously, that was kind of a dick move, so you can't really blame him for never wanting to speak to them again. So that's roughly what's going on in Britannia. As for Rome, naturally you have all kinds of very interesting things going on, but this is not a show about Rome, so we're going to skip over a lot of it and get right to the part that impacts our story. Namely, Caesar's successor, Octavius. So Octavius intended to pick up where Caesar left off, and taking Britannia certainly would have lended some weight to his name. And frankly, he could use that. Following the death of Caesar, things had gotten more than a little unstable in Rome. So, in 34 BCE, plans were put into motion to invade Britannia. And it was looking pretty good. But things didn't work out because Mark Antony decided to make his son the ruler of Armenia and declared that Cleopatra was the queen of kings. So that disrupted things pretty quick. Fighting barbarians is great and all, but he needed to maintain his hold on power, and so he had bigger fish to fry. And the date was moved back to 28 BCE. However, as that date got closer, it became clear that it wasn't going to be the best of plans almost certainly due to the fact that Rome had become lawless thanks to years of civil war. Not exactly the best of times to leave the seat of power and go fight, you know, foreigners. So once again, Octavius had other matters to attend to. 
But hey, maybe next year. And then next year came around, 27 BCE. And that might have been a really great time to launch an invasion, but something pretty significant happened on that year. He became Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. And while that was a significant promotion, it was also dodgy business for Octavius. The title of emperor was dangerously close to king, and Rome had a rather tense history when it came to kings ruling over them. And that's why they were a republic for so long. Kings just weren't beloved. And while it is good that he didn't go for the title Romulus, even Augustus was playing with fire. And it wasn't like Rome was the most stable of places before his elevation. So while taking land from the barbarians in Britannia certainly would have added weight to his name, leaving the empire to do that probably wasn't the best of choices. And needless to say, the invasion didn't materialize. And all of this was good news for the Britons, because with the threat of invasion lifted and Roman intervention in the West lessening from years of infighting, trade was once again starting to flourish between Britannia and the continent. And it wasn't long before cattle, hides, grain, gold, silver, slaves, and hunting dogs were all being exported from the island in exchange for wine, oil, and glass. And apparently the wine was desperately needed. We're told in Roman sources that the Britons made their own wine, and the climate at the time would have allowed for that, but the Romans had nothing positive to say about it. Apparently, it was awful. So if you were part of the upper class, and those were largely the people who could take advantage of trade goods, imported wine was probably a must. So that's how things were going for a while. And then back in Rome, Augustus was succeeded by Tiberius. And Tiberius is a very interesting character in history. He started out as a rather good ruler, but eventually he gave in to debauchery and paranoia, and that led him to be known as a vengeful and tyrannical emperor. But as far as our story goes, he has almost no impact upon Britannia. So we're going to leave analysis of Tiberius' rule to other podcasts. But while I said that Tiberius had almost no impact, I didn't say that he had absolutely no impact. And despite never invading, visiting, or probably even thinking about Britannia— in a very roundabout way, he started something that would end up touching upon our island. The thing is that Tiberius adopted Germanicus as his son. And Germanicus was a hell of a Roman general, but he only had two impacts upon our story. The first is that his men actually visited Britannia. Well, visit is probably a strong term. They were shipwrecked there. And so they had a brief stay. And then they came back with horrifying tales of monsters and magical beasts. And those highly imaginative soldiers did the Brits a solid with that, because it was quite a long time before anyone thought about visiting Britannia. And Germanicus's second impact upon our story was that he had a son named Gaius. And I guarantee that you've heard of Gaius, but you might be more familiar with his nickname, Little Soldier's Boot, or in Latin, Caligula. <laughs> And I'd like to point out how hard it is for me to keep this podcast on track, because Caligula is another interesting character in history. But if I get drawn into too many tangents, I might never get back to our main story. So let's just say this about Caligula. He could not have known that his paranoia and tyrannical bloodthirst would eventually lead to the expansion of the empire into Britannia. Okay, we're going to actually have to say a little bit more than that. So Caligula was paranoid, 
cruel, crazy, tyrannical, bloodthirsty, and, as luck would have it, the holder of nearly complete power in Rome. What could possibly go wrong with this? So if we skip over a lot of what he did, and we're going to need to, let's get to 40 CE, where Caligula started to make significant moves towards the invasion of Britannia. And that actually wasn't too bad of an idea. Just like Caesar and Octavius realized, if that island could be taken for Rome, their names would carry significantly more weight. And it wasn't just politics, though politics were certainly important amongst the Romans. It was also cultural. The Romans, especially the upper-class Romans, were obsessed with the achievements of their ancestors, and they felt a huge amount of pressure to live up to their standards. And that's a tough road to follow when you're Caligula. So naturally, taking the island that Caesar failed to take would be a rather big feather in his cap. It was a smart move. But even a broken clock is right twice a day. And don't worry, he isn't going to let the expansion of Rome get in the way of his need to be a total fruitcake. So, Caligula and his soldiers march to the English Channel. And once he arrives, he boards a trireme. And he goes out a little ways into the channel, and then he sails back. Now, as many of you remember, the Romans aren't exactly the bravest of people when it comes to the ocean. And given the fact that Caligula wasn't known for his stout-hearted demeanor, it's quite possible that he got the heebie-jeebies and insisted they turn the boat around. It's also possible that he was scouting, but I find that doubtful since apparently he didn't make it all that far. And part of me wonders if he was sensing that the legions weren't excited about this prospect of crossing the channel, and he was trying to prove to the soldiers that crossing it could be done, and that they had nothing to fear. But unfortunately, we don't know exactly why he did this. Anyway, so Caligula gets back on dry land, and then he sits on his high throne. And yeah, he brought a throne with him for this invasion. Classic Caligula. And then we're told something bizarre happened. Caligula gave the order for battle, and the trumpeters blasted the war signal. And there must have been some sort of hesitation or confusion. You can almost imagine the legions wondering what the hell is going on. Were they supposed to fight? And if so, who? Were they supposed to swim or all board ships? What's the plan here? So maybe that's why nothing happened. Of course, the more likely thing is that he didn't have the respect of his soldiers. And what was going on here was essentially a mutiny. Caligula said to advance, and it looks like the soldiers just stood there. Why risk their lives crossing Oceanus and fighting these strange painted warriors that troubled Caesar so much? Again, we aren't given details on precisely what happened, but given what happened next, I wonder if this wasn't just a complete breakdown of discipline. So upon seeing the reaction, or more likely, the lack of reaction, to his first order, Caligula then gave a further order. He wanted the soldiers to gather up shells from the beaches. Fair enough, that was something they could do. It didn't involve getting into boats, it didn't involve crossing Oceanus, and it definitely didn't involve fighting the Britons. So, the soldiers did as they were commanded. And once he had the shelves, he returned to Rome in triumph, having conquered the sea. Or something. Oh, Caligula. Now, if the emperor was just running around doing things like conquering clams, it wouldn't be good for Rome, but at least it wouldn't be the end of the world. But the problem was that Caligula was also brutal and cruel. So, in addition to expanding the capital's shellfish menu... Everyone's favorite psychopath was also executing kings, nobles, commoners, you name it. 
His paranoia knew no bounds, and he only felt safe when all these alleged conspirators were dead. But the problem was that there were no end to the number of people who he believed were conspiring against him. So imagine if you're a Praetorian guard for this man. If he could kill a king on a whim, what would stop him from killing you? That was the position that the commander of the Praetorian Guard, Cassius Chirea, was in. And to make matters worse, Caligula delighted in mocking him for being effeminate and weak. If you're Cassius, you have to be asking yourself how long before the mocking would turn into accusations of treason. But if he quit, that would probably also be used as proof of his treason. So he was trapped, but he probably wasn't going to live very long if things kept going the way they were going. Something would have to be done, and quickly. Now, it should be noted that Cassius likely had the support of other well-placed men in Rome, including the Senate. So he was not acting alone in this. But on January 24, 41 CE, Cassius and other Praetorian guardsmen stabbed Caligula 30 times in an underground corridor beneath the imperial palaces. Once the emperor was dead, they decided to wipe out any figure that his supporters could rally around. So they killed Caligula's wife and daughter. And then it became clear that the guard was going to wipe out the entire imperial family. Oh dear. And so we're told that Caligula's uncle, Claudius, hid himself. Now Claudius was well known in the halls of power of Rome, and not for any positive reasons. Probably due to his sickness in his youth, he had a pronounced limp, which was probably a club foot. And he was also partially deaf. As a result, he was treated incredibly badly for most of his life. Even his own family referred to him as a monster and made awful comments regarding his lack of intelligence. And now that same family was being butchered. And because of his disability, he had little choice but to hide. Due to prejudice and backwards thinking, he just wasn't a respected figure in Rome and rather was seen at best as an idiot and a non-threat by those in power. And many times, he was seen as far worse than that. No one in the halls of power saw any value in him whatsoever. No one except a Praetorian named Gratus. Gratus found Claudius before any of the others could kill him and proclaimed him the new princeps. The irony is that the assumptions made by the Praetorians and nobility regarding his abilities, the same ones that had made his life hell up to this point, were probably the reason why he was able to survive the murderous Praetorian guard and their dynastic purge. Now, yours truly wonders if he had a hand in the conspiracy, and that he chose to leg it once it got way out of hand. But that is just an idle musing, and it's probably something we'll never know. But consider what we have here. There have only been a handful of emperors, and already we've had multiple paranoid murderers in charge. And now we have the Praetorian Guard bypassing the Senate and picking an emperor, after butchering the prior emperor. Oh, Rome. And frankly... This wasn't exactly the best of situations for Emperor Claudius. Not only was he maligned by the public as being weak, crippled, and stupid, but his installment wasn't exactly steeped in tradition. He was in a precarious position, and it surely didn't escape his notice that his own nephew was killed by members of the very same organization that was now charged with defending him. You would think that that would be grounds for instant termination, don't you think? Or at the very least, it would cause red flags during an interview. Okay, I see here on your resume that you were tasked with defending the last emperor, and then you killed him. Do you have anything to add to that? No? 
Okay, well, thank you for your time, and I wish you the very best of luck in your job search, but we're going to have to move in another direction. I mean, I'm guessing that's how Claudius would have liked to have handled it, but that option wasn't available to him. He was stuck with these guys. So if you wanted to be anything more than a puppet, and if you wanted to have a full life, you probably would need to strengthen his standing ASAP. And that's where Britannia gets into the mix and alters the course of history. The thing is that Commius, king of the Atrobates, had several sons, one of whom was named Verica. And don't forget that while Commius had broken up with Rome, his sons didn't follow suit, and actually, they had a rather close relationship with the empire. Anyway, the kingdom of the Atrobates were split amongst his three sons in various twisty ways following their father's death, but in the end, after his brothers were all dead, Verica became the king of a unified kingdom of the Atrobates, ruling out of Calava Atrobatum, which is modern-day Silchester. And he ruled from about 15 CE to 40 CE. However, they weren't the only tribe in the region. The Catuvalani were also there. Do you remember the Catuvalani? That was Casavalanus's probable tribe. And they were, of course, the Atrobates' rivals. And they'd become quite powerful since we last saw them. Not only that, but they were doing what the Catuvalani did best. They were getting rowdy. And naturally, the Atrobates, who were friendly to Rome, were an obvious target for their hostility. They hadn't forgotten what occurred decades earlier when the Atrobates were on the side of Rome against the Catuvalani. And so, under the command of Caractacus, son of Cunobelinus, the Catuvalani conquered and annexed the kingdom of the Atrobates sometime around 40 CE. And as you might suspect, that was a bit of a problem for their king, Verica. He rather liked being king. So it shouldn't surprise you that we're told by Dio that at this same point in history, a man named Bericus arrived and begged Claudius to invade Britannia. Given Rome's history with butchering non-Latin names and the timing of the visit, Bericus was almost certainly Verica, the deposed king of the Atrobates. What incredible timing. He arrived begging for an invasion at exactly the point where Claudius desperately needed a win. Taking Britannia, and maybe even claiming the title of Britannicus, might give Claudius exactly the fame and glory that he needed to solidify his rule and protect him from his own guard. Sure, Britannia was a stronghold of Druidism, and the Druids were a big problem for the Romans in Gaul, and theoretically, Rome had cause to defend her ally, the Atrobates. But whatever, all that could be pushed aside. The fact of the matter is, those Praetorians had awfully sharp swords and people were snickering at Claudius. The simple fact was that Claudius needed to secure his position, and the way Roman emperors generally accomplished that task was to conquer another province. And we'll get to that next time. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. 